Well, good morning. I'd like to welcome you all out to the Lake Street Church of Christ. As uh, was already done, I want to give a huge welcome to our visitors, those of you who are with us, many of which that we have, uh, that we have met before. I'm thankful for your time with us, some of which that we haven't met before. We look uh, forward to getting to know you better. If you'd like to open your Bibles up and follow along, we'll be reading from the book of Mark in just a moment, Mark 16. Uh, just to give everyone a, uh, a chance to get caught up with where we are, why are we starting in Mark 16? Well, we have, uh, over the past several months, been studying through the book of Mark, reading through and, and learning the, the, the gospel story, the gospel account that Mark is revealing, um, the narrative that he is telling us about this man, this carpenter from Nazareth, uh, and why we should believe he is the Son of God. He has uh, bookended his, his, uh, his gospel account upon a phrase that is read in, in the first chapter when Jesus is baptized. The heavens are ripped open and a voice descends from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that is kind of the, the thrust into Mark's narrative that, that kind of begins everything for us. This is Jesus, the, uh, the Christ, the, the carpenter from Nazareth that was declared by the heavens to be the Son of God, and it closes as well in chapter 15, with a Roman centurion, a Gentile, at the, at the, at the death of Christ, as the, the sky is darkened and the earth shakes and the veil of the temple is torn in two. Again, that phrase that is used there, that the, the veil is ripped. It's the same Greek word that describes the heavens being ripped open in Mark 1. And the same phrase is said again, truly this was the Son of God. Mark has bookended, and, and really, the, for all intents and purposes, the story of Jesus has come to a close, but the story can't end there. Because the story that ends in Mark 15 is a story without hope. It's a story of a, of a man that was shown to be the Son of God over and over again, but was defeated. A man who died on the cross and his story ended. But we know that's not where the story ends. Mark continues on in chapter 16. And what I want to do as we read through the chapter 16 today is see that this, the reason that Mark ends here is not just to, to allow us to understand this miraculous and, and amazing power of the, of the resurrection, but to draw a conclusion to his narrative. The narrative closes with a fact. But it needs to have a conclusion, something that we take away with us, something that, that, that drives us as we go forward. And that is what Mark is going to do in, these, in, in this chapter. And so I encourage you to follow along with us. Mark chapter 16, I want to read the first eight verses and we'll talk about those for a moment. It says, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, he, uh, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him as he has said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So Mark chapter 16 starts off with this, this picture of the women on their way to the tomb to anoint Jesus, uh, anoint the body of Jesus in his, uh, for, for his burial. 
And I want us to remind ourselves just for a quick moment of the timeline that Mark has already displayed for us. In Mark 15, Mark 15 and in verse 34, it says, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, in, in Jewish time, this is around roughly what we see as 3 p.m., 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Jesus cries out, and this is on the day prior to the Sabbath. So this is on a Friday. Friday night, around 3 p.m., towards the close of the Jewish day, Jesus cries out, and shortly thereafter, passes from this life. Now, that evening, Joseph of Arimathea, he has to do this quickly, he requests the body. And we talked about that, how that is a, 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 a characteristic of someone that, that has a lot to lose, but is willing to go and willing to, to risk it all to do something for his Lord. Because as Mark de, de, describes and other gospel accounts describe as well, he was not just a good man, he was a follower of Jesus, but a follower in fear of the Jews, but a follower nonetheless. And he goes to Pilate and he says, I want his body to bury him. But it's not just because that's what he needs to do for his king. It's because he is still trying to keep the old law as well. In Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23, Jewish law requires that if a criminal is, is executed, he is, his body is to be buried that same day. Remember, he died near the end of the day, and the Sabbath day is coming, and he is not able to do this on the Sabbath, and be in, he will be in violation of the law of the Sabbath. And so he takes this, uh, this opportunity to go to Pilate and say, Now, can I please have his body? to do with what, what as Jews we must do. And he goes to bury him. And we see then that Mary and, and, and Salome and some of these others, they, they witnessed that. In verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. So they see this. They see where he's laid, but they are not able to get the spices, it would, it, it would, we would assume. They were not able to get the, the things that they needed to anoint that body so that it wouldn't begin to, to stink it wouldn't, as, it, as the decaying process began. They would leave the body in the tomb for quite some time, and then after a while, the bodies would be taken out of the tombs. As, as tradition goes, they would take them out, and they would put them into a bone box. So they prepare the body for that process to happen. They're, they are, in their mind, this is what's going to happen to, to our, our Lord. This is what's going to happen to Jesus. And that's important to see. So they, they have to wait for this. Uh, on the Sabbath, on, that is the Saturday. And then on the first day of the week, on Sunday, the third day that Jesus' body has been in the ground, uh, they are going to anoint His body finally as is their custom. Now, why all of that is important is because what I wanted to do is I wanted to highlight what Mark's already going to highlight, and that is the mindset of the disciples of Christ. At least the disciples uh, the, these women who are disciples who have followed Him. Note their conversation as they're going along their way. Note what they're talking about. How are we going to remove the stone? This is a huge stone. This is a huge obstacle for even three women to try and do something with. This is something that would have taken several men to roll in front of and several men to roll away. And that's what they're concerned with as they're walking early on this Sunday morning to try and anoint the body of, of, their, of the Christ, they're thinking, how are we going to do this? Notice what they're not thinking. They're not thinking, what are the Pharisees going to say when He comes back to life? What are the Pharisees going to do when He rises up? 
They're not thinking, what are the Romans going to do when they see this man that they've crucified? And they're certainly not thinking, what are we going to do with this body that we've stolen? These are not things that are on their minds. Their mind says there's a rock in the way of us reaching the dead body of Jesus Christ. That is what their mind is thinking. He is dead and we have to anoint Him because the process of decay is about to begin. They are fully expecting that. And of course, we, they get there and the stone is rolled away. And now we, we start to see their, their mindsets changing a little bit. Who could have done this? As they draw near, who could have removed the stone? Why would the stone not be in front of the temple? And once again, I want us to think a little logically about this. Who could have rolled this stone away? Well, number one, again, we'll say, not the Romans. Not the Romans. Because if you, know, if you learn anything about Rome, if there's anything that you can remember about Rome, Rome is a very powerful nation, and they become a very powerful nation because they've watched the nations before them. They have taken into account and they've said, we can see a pattern that all of these nations were involved in that led ultimately to their downfall. And that is they never secured peace. And Rome was all about securing peace. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And now they did that in a very unpeaceful way, but they are going to rule with a mighty fist and say, there will be peace in this kingdom. And if there is not peace, we will come and we will make it. And I'm telling you right now, taking the body of this, this leader of this group that is claiming he is the rightful king is not the way to secure peace for Rome. And they know that. It makes no sense for Rome to have rolled this stone away and, and caused any sort of, of, of doubt in anyone's mind. It also makes no sense for the Jews to have done anything with this, with this stone and to do anything with the body. They went to great lengths to make sure that he stays there. They've sealed the stone. They're the ones that requested guards. They were worried that the disciples would take it away. And we know from the account the disciples are off mourning. So who rolled the stone away? Well, as we read further into the, the account, the, the women are still thinking, well, how did this happen? So they venture into the tomb. And what do they find? They find this young man. What a strange thing to find inside the tomb of, of, of where they expect to find the body of their leader. They find a young man clothed in, in white and he causes alarm. This causes them to be, to be taken by, by surprise. Who is this? Where did he come from? Did he roll this stone away? How did all this happen? And then he begins to speak. And I want you to note, at least according to, to Kyle Blevins, these are two of the most hopeful passages in all of Mark 16, maybe in the whole book of Mark, these two passages, these two verses that he speaks. First, he says, don't be alarmed. He comes in, they're expecting to find the body of Christ. They come in, the stone is gone. There's this strange young man in there. And what's going on? He says, don't, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. You've not went to the wrong tomb. You're at the right place. He's not here anymore. He has arisen. This passage is the basis for the hope of all those who follow Christ. We are not following the, the, the carpenter from Nazareth that, that came and said good things and did amazing things, but was killed by the Romans and, Romans and the Jews, and that was the end of his story. The resurrection provides hope for those of us who follow Him. Why is that? Well, one, the resurrection demands, and it is intended to produce change within us. The fact of the resurrection does not allow us for a moment. 
It doesn't allow us for a moment to, to, to look upon this and rejoice before walking back into our old life. Before walking back into, in, into the characteristics and into the mannerisms and into the, the, the thought processes and actions that we did before. It demands us to question our lives. It demands us to look at ourselves in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these women who believed. They believed this is the Son of God. But He's dead now. And we're walking and, and, and we're talking about what are we going to do when we get there? Who are we going to get to roll the stone away? How are we going to anoint the body of, of, of our, our, our beloved Lord who has been killed? And when they get there, He is risen. Now, I don't know what their first thought was. But as I thought about this, as I meditate on this, I wonder if their first thought was not, what did I say? What did I do? What did I think when I was around Him? He walked with us and He did amazing things and He showed us over and over again signs that we couldn't explain. Signs that could only be attributed. We talked about it in our Bible class this morning. The, the, the man that was blind said, how could He have done this without God? How could He have made me? God doesn't hear the, 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 the prayers of a sinner. He doesn't listen to a sinner. But look at the things that He has done. There's no way He could be a sinner and, and have these signs backing Him. They had to have thought about these things. Look at all this, but... In the back of their mind, he's dead. And I don't know that he's coming back. His resurrection is the, is the exclamation point on all of the things that he's been talking about up to this point. And I have to wonder if they walk around going, if that, he really was the Son of God, what was I thinking? What was I saying? How was I acting? Because I know as I read through this, and I read about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, it causes me to look at my life, walking and believing, but thinking, what have I been saying? What have I been doing? How have I been acting in light of the resurrection? That exclamation point that says, He is the Son of God. He is risen. But I also want us to note that this is a hopeful passage because what it means is that we can be risen as well. We can go from death to life. And that's looked about in the Scriptures in two different ways. Ronnie talked this morning about Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short. All of us, through Adam, are doomed to death. But we can go from death buried in, 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 in sin, stuck in, 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 the, in, in just the, the, the muck of, of a sinful life. We can go from death into life and be arisen with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is going to make the same point, but he's making it in a future sense as well. He's saying that we can be risen with Christ and we can be risen with Him not just spiritually, we can be risen from, this, from a, a physical death as well. In verse 20, he says that now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. He's become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now sometimes people have a problem with this passage. They say, well, he wasn't the first one to be raised from the dead. So how is that true, Paul? Because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. And you even have Old Testament examples. Samuel was raised from the dead. So how? How can he be the first fruits? And we point back to all those people and say, yes, He raised them from the dead, but what happened to them? 
They went back to death. Samuel didn't stay, maybe didn't even really physically raised. We're not really for sure about that account. But we know Jairus' daughter and with Lazarus, all of these people died again. Jesus raised to a new life. And as the end of Mark is going to conclude, He is still alive today. He has went to be with God in eternity. And, 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 and He is preparing a place as He has been telling His disciples throughout the, through the, in the book of John and throughout His ministry. He's preparing a place that we can be with God too. We can have that same life that He's being risen to. So there's first fruits. And if there's first fruits, you can bet there's going to be second fruits. There's going to be those that follow in the pattern of the, of the first. And that's what Paul is saying here. Because He was risen, we have hope that we can rise too. In verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This verse in Mark 16 has so much hope rammed into those three words. He is risen. And you can be risen too. And you can be moved from, from death and sin to life in Christ. And you can be moved from death physically into a, into a resurrection with God. Victory comes through that. But I said there's two verses. There's two hopeful statements that come out of this. The first one is He is risen. The second one is verse 7. He says, go tell His disciples and Peter. Go tell Peter. Now Peter was so outspoken. Peter was that, that, that strength, that backbone of this group that over and over again was ready to stand up. He's the one that's slicing off ears. He's, the, he's like, look at me. I'm the one that's going to be leading these people whenever, whenever Christ is not available. But what was his words? He said, I will never deny you. I will die with you. No matter what everyone else around us does, I will never, ever deny you. I'm with you to the end. But in the end, Peter, Peter goes to great lengths to separate himself from Christ. Peter doesn't just abandon Jesus as everyone else does. He denies Jesus. He betrays his word to Jesus. And Jesus wants Peter to know something. Now, have you ever been betrayed by someone? You ever, you ever maybe kind of went out on a limb to help somebody out, you know, help somebody out maybe give them some money or you, you give them a, a reference for a job and they just utterly betray your trust? Completely take advantage of you. Oftentimes, I, I hope our mindset is not, well, I hate that person, I never want to have anything to do with them, but it's really hard not to have the mindset, okay, I'm watching you, and we're not going to have that relationship again. You want, to, you want another referral from me? I don't think so. I remember what you did last time. You want more money from me? I don't think so. I remember what you did last time. That is a very easy conclusion for us to come to. I'm going to keep you at arm's length because I, don't, I know that I can't trust you. Peter has utterly betrayed Jesus in the way that he has treated him. And Jesus wants him to know I want you back. I want you close to me. I want you doing the work that I intended for you to do. He says, you are still my disciple, Peter. 
and what He's calling to him here. I still have work for you. John records how later Jesus is going to see them on the, on the Sea of Galilee. And three times, remember, Peter denied Him three times. Three times He's going to ask Him, Peter, do you love Me? And then give Him a task. Feed My sheep. He still has a use for Him in the kingdom. We need to realize that. We need to take hope from that. We are going sometimes to stumble. You're going to be overcome by sin. And when that happens, when we're overcome by sin, do we look within ourselves? Do we look within and say, you know what? I just can't do it. I've been trying. I've been fighting with this problem. And I can't beat it. It's, I don't have the righteousness. I don't have the ability. I can't do what He's asked me to do. If you've ever felt that way, if you've ever experienced that, that, that hopelessness, I want you to think about Peter. I want you to think about how, how much pain it must have caused Christ to hear one of His closest friends swearing and cursing, I don't know this man. I'm not a part of him. And I want you to see the example of Christ afterwards. As He comes to His disciples with arms stretched out saying, I still, bear the, I still bear the wounds that were caused when you abandoned me. The wounds in my hands and my feet and my side that were caused when you left me. And I want you not only to see those, I want you to know that this is why I came. I came to bear that. I came to bear that pain. I came to bear that burden. We need to remember this today. When we have this mentality that says, I can't do it. We need to hear Jesus saying, I know. That's why I had to come. That's why I had to die. Because you couldn't do it. But I have died now. And I, my death means something. It gives you something. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things not through my own abilities, not through my righteousness I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and so when we start to feel this hopelessness when we struggle with sin we don't look at it and go well you know what I give up I'm just never going to be good enough we also don't look at it and say well you know what Christ died and so he'll he'll just cover that we look at it and say Christ died so that I could be transformed from this and I know it's going to be hard, and I know that I'm going to struggle, and I'm going to stumble, but I'm going to rely on the promise and the power that comes through His death. He wants us to get back up. He wants us to realize that it doesn't make us not a disciple anymore. It makes us a disciple that needs to rely on Him and get back to work in His kingdom. And so you have these two great, powerful messages. He is risen. Go tell Peter of all people. And what do they do? They get filled with fear. They are afraid and they tell no one. Now we do know that Mary Magdalene is going to say something about this. She's going to speak. But Mark records the first things that go through their mind is they're afraid and they keep this amazing message to themselves. This has been... This has been a huge part of Mark's Gospel. Fear controls people. It was controlling them then. 
It's been controlling those who are closest to Jesus for quite some time. You remember, as Jesus comes by on the, on the water, and they are afraid. When Jesus is with them in the boat, they are afraid. Over and over again, Jesus is going to them and saying, why are you so fearful? Are you of such little faith? Fear has been a huge problem with throughout the book of Mark. And Mark, in his next section, is going to challenge us. It is going to draw all of this to a conclusion. What is the information that I have just given to you going to do with that fear in your life? Are you going to remain in it? Or are you going to move forwards towards faith? And so, let's read that account real quick. And I want to make some, some really important comments on this next section because it is heavily contested and heavily argued about even to this day. And I think we can, learn, we can still learn great amounts from it. So verse 9 says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and he had seen her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. But they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. As I said, this, this, these verses that I've just read, they're contested. There are people who argue and question, should this be in our Bibles? Does this really belong in the Holy Scripture? Now, Why would somebody ask that question? Why would they claim that they don't believe that it belongs in there. Well, maybe if your Bible is like mine, you have a footnote. And I want to read what my footnote says to you. And this is 100% not inspired Scripture. This is the writing of the people that put this Bible together. But I want you to note something they say. In verses 9-20, through 20, this is just quoting from, from this Bible, verses 9-20 through 20 are identified, that is bracketed, italicized, somehow otherwise denoted, they are identified as not in the original text. Now, a lot of translations stop there, and that's a scary thought. This is not in the original text. What does that mean? That means that somebody had to have added it in later, and if it's added in, we need to reject it. But as the, as the footnote continues, they are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. And again, I'll stop there. Because there are several other translations that include that as well. The reason that, they're, that, we, that the, the statement is made, they're not in the original text, is because they're not in these two uh, manuscripts that we have, the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus. Now, this at least gives us a little bit more comfort. Okay, you're claiming it's not in the original text because it's not in those two manuscripts. 
Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it, wasn't added, that it was added in. That could mean that those two left it out. But what scholars will argue is these two codexes are incredibly important to determining what is the Bible. And, and, and what they have done is based a lot of, of emphasis on the, the accuracy, as we should, and on the importance of these, of these two manuscripts. But I want to read the rest of this footnote. And this is something that's kind of... It's not in a lot of other translations, and it really should be added in, because this is where a lot of people miss the point. As I said, they are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus. Although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. So for just a moment, let's talk about what these two manuscripts are. Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus are the two most complete manuscripts that we, have, that we have found to date. The Sinaiticus contains half of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament in one document. And when I say the, uh, 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 the Codex, think of think similar to a book. Manuscript, just, just some document that has writing on it that contains the words that we have in our, in our Holy Scriptures today. They're claiming, all right, the reason that we don't think Mark 9 through 20 should be in there, because Sinaiticus, which again, as I told you, has almost all of the Bible in one, pla- in one place, it leaves it out. And it was dated back to around the 4th century. So just maybe 400 years, 350 years after the life of Christ. Now an interesting thing on that, the Codex Sinaiticus ends at Mark 8 and jumps into Luke 1. But there is a huge gap not found at the end of any other chapter. Almost like there was more to go in there but didn't get filled in. I just want you to think about that. But also the Codex Vaticanus. They say, well, that doesn't really matter because you also have the Codex Vaticanus. It is a a huge chunk of the Old Testament, almost all of it, and almost all the New Testament. And they have Mark 8, and they they end right there and go straight into Luke 1. That and a handful of other manuscripts that do the same thing have led many people to say, Mark uh, Mark 16, 9-20 does not need to be in our Bibles. But as I also read, that's just two manuscripts. That's two manuscripts in light of literally thousands. Do you know how many manuscripts we have that contain the writings of the Gospels, of the, the, the epistles of Paul and John and Peter, the book of Revelation? Let no one ever say to you, well, you just have this because of blind faith. There is a lot of evidence, a lot of evidence that goes in to saying we know that these words were not just written by men a couple hundred years ago, uh, even maybe a thousand years ago. These were words written 2,000, 3,000 years ago describing events that happened. And we have Thousands of evidences of that. Not just one or two. And in almost all of those, bar a handful, they contain Mark 16, 9-20. through 20. 
Mark 16, 9 through 20 is a conclusion. I want you just to think about the fact that if Mark 16 ended at verse 8, it ends right in the middle of a thought. I know it ends at the end of a sentence. He gives them a command uh, to, to go out and tell everyone, and they leave, and they're trembling, and they're amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That is not a conclusion of a thought. There's still more going on in that. So many oftentimes will say, well, okay, we can, we can contend then that probably 9 through 13 is true, but we're going to throw out 14 through 20. So they, some say there's, there's the longer version, which is what we've just read, and there's the shorter version, which goes through uh, roughly around you know, 13, and then there's just, we're going to cut it at 8. Why is there so much confusion over this passage. Well, the reason that they accept 9 through 13 is because that's backed up by other scriptures. There's other scriptures that contain, we call that internal evidence. There's external evidence that says, look, we can believe that those are in there because we have copies of them uh, that, that, that have them in there. But there's internal evidence as well because 9 through 14 details Jesus visiting several people after his resurrection. He visits Mary Magdalene in verses 9 through 11. And John 20, verse 11, records the same thing. And no one contests that because it's in all of the manuscripts. And then in verses 12 through 13, he visits these two men on the road, which Luke 24, 13 records as well, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And no one contests that because it's in every manuscript. John 20 records how Jesus appears to his disciples to prove it is him, and he allows them to inspect his body. But the fact that Mark records in verse 14 that he rebuked them for their unbelief, and that's not recorded in any other, any other translation, has led many people to say, well, that's, that's just not fitting with Jesus who, who is all love, and He's come back from the dead to love them and to lift them up, and He has come back from the dead to love them and lift them up. But how many times in His life has He already rebuked them for their lack of faith? That hasn't changed after the resurrection. He's still calling them. And that's the reason we have trouble seeing this is because so often we miss the point of what Mark 16 is doing. Mark 16 is calling them to stop being filled with fear and be filled with faith. And so the internal evidence for those first, 14, uh, first couple of verses, 9-14, through 14, is, it is stacked up. But that's really not the reason why people want to try and get this out of the Bible. They want to get it out of the Bible because they can't explain verses 15 through 18. In verses 15 through 16, he makes some commandments. And I'm going to go ahead and say right now, these are some difficult passages. We need to not be afraid of admitting that. I think some of them walk around and say, oh no, those passages aren't difficult at all. They make all the sense in the world to me. And they do make sense to me, but they're still difficult. And the people in the world have difficulty with them. And so we need to give time to studying these things and make sure we can give an explanation for them. Why would somebody want 15 through 16 to be in there? Because that, that, that right there is a very clear statement about baptism. We just need to get that out of the Bible. It's not in the original, in the original text is what we'll tell everybody. And, and that's going to just take that and, and, and we'll be done with it. But the problem is, is we've already shown there's external evidence that these verses do belong in there. And there's internal evidence as well. What does he tell them? He says, go preach the gospel to every creature with the intended result that they believe that gospel and they obey that gospel. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He's calling them to do something with the belief and he's making it a point that belief is not just a mental exercise. It's not just something that you think about and you rationalize in your head and say, okay, I believe that now. He's saying if you believe it, it's going to be included or accompanied with an action. You're going to follow it 
if you believe it. And he also says these signs are going to accompany those who believe. Signs that have already been seen by the apostles. He talks about casting out demons. Earlier in the book of Mark, right? Mark 6. Mark 6 records how Jesus gave them the ability to cast out unclean spirits. He talks about them being able to speak in tongues. We're going to see that very soon in Acts chapter 2. And not speaking in gibberish either. They are speaking in tongues in which every man could hear in his own language. In Acts 28, it records Paul being bit by a viper and miraculously surviving that with no harm. And, and that even happens in, in Jesus' ministry as well. In Luke chapter 10, verse 19, they're given power over snakes and scorpions. So all of these signs are confirmed in other places as well. And the reason we have a hard time with them is because we go, well, I don't know what the purpose of them is. What is the purpose of them? Well, in verse 20, it says the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word through the accompanying signs. Signs continued as long as they had a purpose, as long as they had a need. And what was that need? They served the same function that every sign does today. As you came here, as you traveled down the road, you looked for road signs. Because that road sign identified that road. You tell someone where, you know, how to come to the building. We say, you've got to turn on Lake Street and then you're going to turn on Sparks Avenue. And so they drive down, they're looking for the sign that identifies this road belongs to, is, is the Lake Street Road, and this road is the, the Sparks Avenue Road. When you put a sign on a box, that sign identifies what's in that box or who that box belongs to. The signs that Jesus speaks about here, the signs that were given to the apostles and to the early church were signs that identified who they were and who they belonged to. They belong to Christ. And the word that they spoke were the words of Christ. And we see that not just with His apostles, but with early disciples. As I mentioned, the church of Corinth has many uh, who are able to do signs and they're misusing their ability to use signs. But it's there we find out that those signs had a purpose and that purpose is drawing to an end for those signs. But the greater sign that has always been there, that has always underscored those who belong to God, was going to continue. And that was love. So in multiple ways, both inside the Bible and outside the Bible, Mark 16, 9-20 is proven to be exactly where it needs to be. And it ends with Jesus returning to the Father. As we said before, He doesn't return to the grave. He returns to the Father. So what? What's the point then in all of that? Here's the point. The point is, are you going to move from fear to faith? When you hear the Gospel, that this Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, that He came from God to become a man, and He lived righteously without sin, and He died for you, and He was resurrected. He didn't stay in the ground. He is risen, and He's calling you do something with this Gospel. What are you going to do with it? The apostles were told by Him, preach the Gospel. And preach true faith. Preach belief which leads somewhere. Belief which leads to obedience. And that's exactly what they did. In Acts 2, verse 38, as they preached the Gospel to the, to the Jews of that day. They believed. They were pricked in their heart when they heard the message that God has raised up this Jesus to be the Christ. And they said, what do we do then? 
Why did they ask that? Because they believed the words that were spoken. They believed the good news of the Gospel was that Jesus was the Son of God and we killed Him. What do we do? Acts 2.38, Paul tells them, Repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins. The same thing that Philip tells the Sumerians in Acts chapter 8 and verses 5 and 12 and the eunuch in Acts chapter 8 and verses 35 through 38. Ananias preaches this to Paul in Acts 22 verse 16. Paul, still in his sin, after seeing Jesus on the road, believing enough to follow Him to where He said to go, still in his sin, Ananias comes to him and says, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and, and wash away your sins. Do you still hear that same message preached today? It's oftentimes the world changes this message. But what we are here to do is to proclaim the very same message proclaimed in Mark 16 that he was risen. And He wants you, despite what you've done, He wants you to come to Him, to be His disciple, and to follow Him, to hear the words of His life, and to be changed by them. He wants us to move out of fear. Fear that I'm not good enough. Fear that I can't change. Fear that if I do make a decision to change, it's going to be harder for me. My family may not like it. My friends may not like it. I may get made fun of He says, I'm inviting you to stop living in fear and start living in faith in Me who died and was raised for you. And our question this morning is, would you like to do that? We would love to assist you in doing that. To learn more about Jesus, learn more about His will and His desires for you. And if there's something that we can do to assist you in that, we invite you to come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.